Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we're glad to have you joining us this week. Uh, we are here each week on KTRL 90.5 FM on Sundays at noon. Uh, we also live stream at tarletonradio.com when the show is being aired, but you can also download podcasts on Spotify or Amazon or Apple, and you can follow us on Facebook at On Politics with Eric Morrow. The show is also posted to SoundCloud, uh, so you can listen to that uh, following the airing each week if you're not able to join us at our regularly scheduled time. So we turn this week to local issues, which we try to bring back into the show on a regular basis, looking at issues here in Stephenville, Erath County, and the region, especially this region that Tarleton State is engaged with. Uh, so many of our students uh, come from uh, the surrounding area, but we also have a lot of local listeners as well, uh, and we try to keep them posted on a number of things. One of the areas that has been impacted significantly, and I, I say this with firsthand experience, not only working in a university setting, but my wife being a high school English teacher is public education. So we, we, we see this and live it and, and understand it every day. But we are joined by someone here today here in our Stephenville community uh, who has had a leadership role in the midst of these challenges. And that is Dr. Matt Underwood, the superintendent of Stephenville ISD. And Dr. Underwood has his uh, a doctorate in education from the University of Texas. Again, my wife will be glad about that. She's a UT grad of Texas A&M University, master's in ed administration and is undergraduate at Texas State. And he has been superintendent here in Stephenville since 2014 uh, after serving as superintendent in Lago Vista and Mason ISDs. He's been in public education uh, for 26 years, 23 years in leadership and 17 years as a superintendent. And in addition to an A rating uh, for the, the district's accountability system, one of his accomplishments here has been the, uh, the, the construction bond that many in the community see going on right now as, as portions of that are finishing up. And we wanna ask about that later in the show, but uh, first of all, I wanna welcome you. Thank you for joining us today and for speaking to our listeners and our community about some of the challenges that you're facing in the midst of this pandemic. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, Eric. I appreciate you inviting me on, on your show. Uh, communication has changed a lot, right, during the pandemic, and, it, and it's been hard sometimes to get the word out, uh, especially in, in what we like to see the Stephenville way, right, face-to-face -face handshake, uh, hugs, and, and everything else that, that we value our community and, and the interactions that, are, that we have. Uh, but I, I do appreciate that. Um, I know the Tarleton uh, radio station, we talked earlier, that reached out to me earlier and we talked about some of these issues. But I think at that point, it was, how do you think it's going to work? And now we're going to talk about how it may have worked or how it may not have worked, depending on, I guess, your angle. But so thanks again. You're, you're very welcome. Thanks for your time today. The uh, we're almost at the end of a semester here, uh, one that has had numerous uh, new and unique uh issues and challenges that have presented themselves. Uh, what what has, has helped you in this? And, and I, I, I would say probably the first thing is your, uh, your staff and the commitment of our educators, our teachers and so on. I mean, we're, we're all seeing that here at Tarleton and in, in other places as well. But, but what are the things that have really helped you to keep the, the schools open, to keep students in the classroom and, and to try to make this work uh, through this first part, this first semester of the year? Well, I think I think you hit it on nail on the head, uh, starting with our staff, uh, the dedication of our staff. It was a super, uh, I mean, just impressive and obvious uh, how our staff rallied in the spring uh, when the when the virus first approached us and we didn't really know what to do with it, um, how they they got together online lessons and, and within four days they had turned around and got home lessons out to kids with with uh, iPads and I mean and in cases where we couldn't get them what you know our service or they didn't have networks uh, we also had hot spots and some things that that it was just uh, it was a testament to their effort uh, teachers principals uh, technology department uh, our HR department um, it was all hands on deck I uh, can't say enough about our transportation department um, 
they were engaged from the very beginning and uh, helped feed our kids and our community uh, in that, that time. And our child nutrition, uh, I mean, showed up uh, in record numbers. And, and we, we had a situation at that point where we didn't know much about it. And so we, it was kind of a voluntary basis. If you want to come help, come on. If you, if you don't, we understand. And, and man, our staff showed up in record numbers and uh, it, it was impressive. Uh, but, but I think, uh, what helped us start in the in the fall uh, more than anything out was was the will of our parents and uh, the fact that our parents really needed their kids back in school. Uh, they they'd seen a little window of what virtual would look like, uh, and most of them, over eighty percent of them, uh, wanted their kids to return uh, to as much normalcy as they could get. Now, obviously, we're not back to normal yet, uh, but we are we are closer uh, than we were in the spring. But um, I think those are those are the two driving forces. Um, specifically, uh, looking at the you know some of your questions here. Uh, specifically, what what helped us uh, was having a contract with Cook's Children's Hospital. Uh, when we entered that contract, and uh, and we were able to get feedback uh, from not one doctor but a team of doctors that specifically dealt with pediatric issues and children um, that really helped us carve a path uh, for what could be a reality of opening our schools and and i think with without that it would have been a, a tougher tougher road for us and i know that uh, i know that a lot of school districts in our area uh, have also kind of bounced some things off of us because of what the information and stuff that was shared with our contract with Cooks, and uh, that's been, that's been a savior to us, uh, Eric, throughout this whole process. Very good. Well, that's uh, it's been tremendous work. I mean, the the challenges of of, of 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 a school district in and of itself, without having a pandemic uh, at your doorstep, uh, is is significant, and and it's it's amazing that all of those people have come together, and and I know it's not been without. Uh, smaller crises and issues that come on a daily basis, uh, uh, especially again, as you're in the middle of uh, a, lot, a lot of construction work, we know how that's been on the Tarleton campus of how to try to, to, to function. But thinking about that and what you've learned and, and, and how you've navigated this, this first part of the school year, what do you see are some of the, the challenges going into the, in, into the spring? I mean, I know we've got uh, the potential of a vaccine uh, and, and the wide distribution of that at least some point in this uh, next semester. Uh, but we also have holidays in between now and then, and we're seeing a, a current spike in cases, uh, not just in uh, around the country, but certainly in Texas and the challenge for our healthcare professionals and facilities. And, and uh, uh, I know we've made some adjustments going into the spring, knowing that you're going to have all these kids back home and they're coming back. Uh, uh, to start the year, do you, do you see some things? And, and then some of this too may be on the academic front. I mean, I know last year we saw uh, TEA make some decisions about testing and, and other things that that really help school districts to kind of wrap things up and look to say, okay, how do we how do we prepare for this next year and the environment we may be in? So those, those are a couple of fronts there. I don't know. Do you see some significant things ahead that uh, that you're going to have to navigate this next semester? Yeah, Eric, uh, I think uh, some of our uh, challenges has been uh, trying to keep a, a level of accountability for our kids. Um, when they go home and you're, they're not in your classroom, you're not sure uh, maybe how they're taking the test or what resources they're using versus kids face-to-face. -face. And, and, and that's been uh, one of our biggest academic challenges is uh, providing proctoring, testing, testing proctoring, um, and, but I will say most of our virtual students, and we're down to inside, you know, 10% now, uh, that are virtual, but most of our virtual students have, uh, have signed up for proctoring and, uh, has, have, they've come in and take tests. Uh, yeah. now we, we extreme social distance, uh, when we do that, the very large, uh, area in our, our administration building, our auditorium. Uh, but I think that that's kind of helped level the field that, that we struggled with in the spring. Um, we had we had some back and forth of issues with our GPA policies uh, that were that were difficult uh, when we wrapped up last year's grades. But I think this this year has been a little better. That's um, 
that is really yeah. we're seeing a spike like you said uh, and and i guess the proof really i keep thinking will be in the pudding when thanksgiving came around and left and and when we first came back from thanksgiving we didn't have as many cases as we did prior to thanksgiving but now we've ramped up again and we're starting to see similar numbers of cases that we did before thanksgiving and i don't know if some of that's just a delay um of the virus contracting, moving through the family, um, or if Thanksgiving break may have helped us pause it a little bit. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to, to determine what that's going to be. But I, I know for sure when you have a two-week break, two-week window, um, we'll be able to tell um, if if we know, uh, you know, they, you know, parents may not report a case. It may not be any of our business for two weeks while they're off. And I understand that that philosophy as well. But um, I, I think uh, at, that is one of the toughest parts is, is holding the accountability level the same for everybody. And uh, I know state testing is a hot topic, uh, like you mentioned, as we move into the, the legislative session in January. And there's been multiple bills uh, filed to, to do away with STAR, pause the STAR, um, delay the star, however you want to look at that. Um, I, I'm not real sure. Uh, I know a lot of superintendents jump on that and say, absolutely. Um, but I do think that, that, that there's nothing wrong with testing our kids and finding out what their gaps are and what their needs are. Uh, now, do I think you use that assessment uh, to beat us over the head with uh, in this challenging environment? Absolutely not. I think our accountability should be suspended. Uh, but I, I, I haven't weighed in on, on the fence on whether the star should go away for the spring. And, and I think some of that just we have to see how the, the January and February months play out. Right. Well, as you're saying, too, some of some of that could be uh, uh, markers to see the impact of this. I mean, uh, we, we hear it all over, but until you do actual testing and, and see where students are, uh, but that accountability issue, I, I, I would assume that's going to be hotly debated uh, with the legislature and trying to make some decisions going forward. Uh, along that line, um, what, what are some other aspects of this uh, that uh, where the state needs that that they need to address, especially with a legislative session and 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 the potential for uh, additional resources maybe to be made available to public education because of the the financial impact of this. I mean, you also see some some districts uh, just seen this throughout the state where uh, they're facing possible teacher shortages with people retiring and so on. I mean, again, that's an area where districts are hard pressed, I would assume, to come up with the resources to say, how do we retain people? How do we find the people we need? Uh, are there issues like that, that, that there's kind of an expectation of of superintendents across the state uh, and, and school districts that the legislature needs to address. Yeah, I mean, we have a we've had an enrollment decrease, uh, student ADA uh, decrease. We've had a some uh, parents, I guess, choose uh, smaller schools uh, during the pandemic. I understand that, um, and some parents have decided to homeschool or online curriculum at, at other places. Um, the, I think that that's been a, a big challenge for us as we go into the spring. Now, in the fall, uh, we're under a hold harmless agreement that uh, TEA and the legislature agreed to um, to allow us not to not to see that impact of the students that we've lost. And we've lost probably about 150 kids uh, out of uh, we peaked last year enrollment at about thirty eight forty. And I think we're down to about thirty six hundred, thirty six fifteen, somewhere in there. Uh, so we de definitely have seen a challenge there as far as uh, revenue coming in. Now, um, our biggest challenge is, is quarantines and staff that are that are positive. Uh, we've had uh, 30 staff members from August until November the 10th uh, that were out due, uh, due to COVID. Uh, and those, those are positive cases. Now, then you flip that over from... November the 10th to today, we've had 32. So you can see how it, the staff has ramped up as far as um, their contraction of the, of the disease and the virus, but uh, substitutes has been our biggest uh, personnel issue. Um, 
we we grabbed a few more subs. Uh, I think one day last week uh, we filled 16 positions that normally would be filled with subs, but we had to move aides and other staff into the classroom. Um, and uh, and we are uh, as a central office, we're trying to give our principals a break. And right now we're uh, we're substituting uh, as a principal on each campus just trying to give somebody a, a breath uh, during these, yeah. these tumultuous times. But um, I think you, you kind of touched on, I guess, one of my, my biggest pet peeves, I guess, so to speak. And I, I've let some legislators know this, uh, but, but I have a hard time seeing some of these school districts uh, that are scrambling for devices uh, at the last minute, uh, getting large percentages of the, that money back. Um, and when school districts such as ours that were one-to-one prior to the pandemic, um, we're, we, we don't have an avenue to recoup the money that we've already spent and already planned on. And so it, it's almost kind of like it's, it's punishing you for being forward thinking. Yeah. And um, I think that that's been an equitable issue that, that I, and like I said, I, I understand that these kids need devices, these homes need devices. Um, but, but I do think, there could be a more equitable way to uh, to fund school districts uh, based on the virus and the pandemic versus based on your need, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and and, and I know there are uh, uh, superintendents and school districts are, are well represented in uh, in the legislative session in terms of the the issues that are kind of on the on the front line uh, that we're going into a, a, a budget cycle here too, where at least from what we've heard, and I don't know what you've heard through your uh, uh, work and everything, but the that that there there is some attention that will be focused on public education and the and the impact that this has had. Now, where those resources come from and how they're they're moved around, I mean, it's something we're watching as well in hiring it because of the impact uh, that that this has had and the amount of resources that have had to be used to facilitate different policies and provide remote learning and, and, and do things like that. Uh, just, you know, on that note too, if, um, uh, as you look to coming out of this, what, what are, you, are some of the things that uh, you see that you and, and, and other superintendents will be looking at or, or recommending as we go forward? I mean, it, I know it's challenging right now to kind of look beyond the pandemic. We were getting a little bit of a glimmer with the potential that that vaccines will be available and and so forth. But uh, you know, health public health officials are saying, you know, we're we're going to need to face this reality in the future. What 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 do you see are some things in in your work in public education that uh, would help uh, a school district be better prepared for for something like this? Or what are we learning that may enhance? what we do in our educational mission uh, going forward as well. Yeah, um, I, I think from my standpoint, and I, and I think some legislators and other superintendents probably agree that we need to, we need to pause on uh, some of the expenditures built into House Bill 3. Uh, there, are some, uh, there are some ambitious activities and, that, I, that I think personally would probably benefit our kids. Uh, but I think we've we've got to pay the base bill uh, before we can add some extras, especially with our current economy and this, this state of oil prices in Texas and and well everything sales tax everything is down. Um, so I, I think we need to to try to make sure we fund our schools at a constant level, if possible, before we think of adding on these extra programs or incentives or some of the big big dollar budget items that have been planned through House Bill 3. Um, and I think, it, it, you know, that's that's another argument against standardized testing. I mean, you're talking about nearly a nearly a billion dollars um, sitting there to to roll out standardized testing. And, and, then, and this might be a good time to pause that based on economic conditions. But uh, I, I think that's what we're, I'm going to be at least blowing the horn to, can we pause some of this? We have some very expensive training uh, coming up. And like I said, it's, it, it's good for kids, uh, but, I, but I don't think it's gonna be as good for kids if we're laying off staff um, and then having to turn around, increase class sizes, and then pull those teachers out with the increased class sizes and train them 
Um, I think you're, you're not going to quite see the bang for your buck if those if those two situations cross paths. So uh, that that's what we're going to be pushing for on our end. Just uh, try to stay the course and fund basic education programs. Uh, and I know there's there's a lot of conversation and chatter out there in the legislature about asking for uh, fund balances uh, from school districts and what those are. And, and shouldn't we be using our fund balance before uh, the rainy day fund is tapped? Uh, but once again, I think I think you're going to have a hard time getting into an equitable situation because if, you, if you're a school district and you've taken care of your money and that money is sitting in a savings account and you you have it earmarked for certain construction projects or uh, or basically new programs for your kids, however you want to look at that, if, if you've been a good steward of the taxpayer dollar and saved your money, then how is that going to be equitable to play out with some other school district that maybe not has have not saved as much money? And so I, th I think it's, it's much like our one to one computer situation. Um, I, I don't see that playing out in, in any good form or fashion. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and one of the things with that uh, is we don't know what the new normal is going to be at this point. I mean, I, I would I would assume that there's some 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 things that will come out of this that are that that will require resources that will change some of the ways that we do things. I mean, again, we're seeing that in, in higher ed as well. But uh, when you look back on education policy history in the state, uh, we've, we've been challenged at times to be patient and then kind of wait to see, okay, what, what where, where are we, you know, kind of assess and, and use the time to do that and then make strategic decisions moving forward. And, uh, and I, I would think that this is one of those that we, we need to do that. I mean, it just, it's going to be really uh, things on the horizon that we're just not, we just don't know uh, coming out of this, but at, while, while I have you here, not to, to, to keep you too long, but I, uh, one of the things I think that's been so exciting about uh, the school district here and uh, the what it's offering uh, students uh, in uh, in Stephenville and in the area have been the the, the new facilities, the the upgrades uh, all over the, especially you see it at the high school campus. Of course, there were uh, several new schools that were were built. Uh, uh, previously, but uh, it's really coming along and taking shape. I live near there, so coming to work every morning, I drive by and I see a, a few more brick laid and uh, a few more, a uh, little more concrete poured and that that kind of thing. And, uh, and of course, I'm sure you're counting the minutes until <laughs> there's no, that's all completed and parking lots are put back together and there's no more dirt, uh, as we've experienced here at the State, but could you give us an update on, on that and just a you know a quick uh, overview of some of the unique facilities that are, are now going to be at the uh, uh, at the high school and and what that what significance that is for the school district? Well, I, I've I've always said even early in the bond planning process, um, I am I am not a builder. Um, I am <laughs> not the guy that needs my name on the side of a building. Um, Really, that's a memorial more than it is anything else by the time you get through the process. Uh, but um, at the same time, having said that, we had some pretty glaring needs uh, at Stephenville yep. ISD that, that were addressed in the, in the last bond issue, uh, supported the community. Um, but it's, it's funny because, of, of course, I kind of make fun of, of construction uh, teams and architects and Darren Kerbo and Huckabee, they hate for me to say these things, but um, there, it seems like uh, no matter what, you're, you're always fighting uh, the budget, you're fighting timelines. Um, and, uh, and funny enough, we had a, you know, I've heard everything, every excuse from, you know, act of God to um, labor shortages to, yeah, I mean, you can imagine you've been in the middle of it over at Tarleton. Uh, and we are definitely behind schedule with our, uh, with our new construction, with the exception of the ag building. Um, I will have to give a shout out to Imperial Construction. They did an amazing job. Uh, they did exactly what they said when they said they were going to do it and they did it under budget. So uh, I was uh, pretty impressed with that team. And they also did the same at Gilbert, did a great job at renovating uh, that campus. Um, but yes, the, the auditorium and the gymnasium have been a challenge. Uh, I think both of those were supposed to come online August and September originally. Uh, now, I did say during the, the planning process, when they came to us with a timeline, and the timeline was extremely aggressive. Uh, 
they thought originally they could have everything done after planning. It takes it takes about a year for planning. Uh, but after planning a year and a half, and I just kind of chuckled that night. I said, well, you know, for the for the record, let's let's add six months uh, and let's say two years. Well, by the time we got to breaking the ground a year later after the planning process, and now all of a sudden we were at two years and we hadn't even broke ground. And so now I had to go to two and a half. You know, I had to push mine out for six months. And really, that's where we are right now. We're at two and a half um, on the current timeline. Um, so I think all com construction should be complete by October of 2021. So we're a little inside a year on, on the last schedule. Uh, now, for us to go to December, which could be a possibility, that would be pretty much my target. Uh, but we, we've got a new, uh, a new excuse now. We've got COVID, right? COVID, it's not act of God anymore. It's, uh, it's COVID, it's pandemic. We can't get supplies. And uh, I, I do think there is some truth to that. I mean, not to make jest of construction too much, but there is some truth to that. Uh, I've talked to different home builders and people in the area that have thought about building a house and they're running into some of the same challenges. So I think some of uh, getting the supplies on site uh, and then finding the, obviously a place for them uh, in a compact area with a lot of high school kids parking out front uh, has, has been a challenge. I will have to have to say my high school principal and my athletic director has, has done an amazing job of shuffling everybody and finding a spot for them while somewhere, some other place is getting worked on and renovated. Uh, we've got a lion's share of the renovation still to go, uh, but we are closing in on the gymnasium. Um, uh, we hosted a construction tour for my school board yesterday, and um, I, I think we are going to have the gym completed over the Christmas holidays. So we, we expect to be stepping in there uh, in January 6th when we return. So we're really excited about that facility. It's, um, it's, it's pretty massive. Uh, and it's going to be very, very functional uh, for our kids and our coaches. And, uh, and, and I think the community will, will appreciate it as well. Uh, auditorium still has some work to do. It's a very complicated uh, mm -hmm. structure. Um, and with all the acoustical needs and sound needs. And uh, anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a lot tougher than, than a gymnasium. Let's just say that. Right. Uh, right. But, um, but I, it's going to be, when it's said and done, it's going to be an extremely nice facility. And we are really looking forward to the completion of that project. Uh, and, then, and then we start the heavy lifting on the renovation on the interior of the building. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think there's going to be some amazing, uh, amazing educational outcomes that, that come out of that vocational building and, and some of the changes that we've already got planned for our programs. Well, that's, that's great. Great to hear the update. And I, I, I would put a, a exclamation point that point on there about fine arts buildings. When I came into the position I'm in now, I became building manager of our fine arts center. And, and you think it's just a big building with a bunch of seats in it. And, and there's a complexity to it when you start uh, buying uh, sound shells and lighting and, and, and uh, speakers and, and all of that. And so uh, I, I can relate there how uh, challenging that is, but it, it, it looks like it'll be a great facility for the school district and the, and the community uh, in, in order to, to uh, facilitate the programs there and the events and so forth that you'll have. Uh, I, I really appreciate your time today. This is very informative and, and uh, uh, it, it certainly helps our listeners and, and, and others that will follow by listening on SoundCloud or however uh, they're able to engage with us to, to have this update and also know the tremendous work that you've been doing in uh, navigating the pandemic, but then also uh, providing uh, quality facilities uh, here at Stephenville ISD. So thank you again, Dr. Underwood. We appreciate your time. All right. Well, Eric, thank you. And uh, thank you for helping me get the word out. And like I said, I know it's, it's challenging during the pandemic, but uh, I'll, I'll try to communicate as best I can when I can. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. We will do that. Thank you for, for joining us for this first segment. We're going to take a short commercial break and we'll be right back for more on politics. We are excited to announce that KTRL 90.5 FM is now streaming online. Tune in anytime to catch your favorite shows from Tarleton Public Radio. Relax and enjoy the best of NPR news, classical, jazz, and all of our local programs like Essential Jazz, Beatles and Beyond, and more. To listen to your KTRL favorites, visit tarletonradio.com or click listen live at ktrl.fm. 
It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes, and you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to, are you? Kids, work, listening to the radio, you're busy. Which is great, because busy people can't get prediabetes. Oh my, I read that wrong. <laughs> they can! Should have worn my glasses. So visit doihaveprediabetes.org and take a short test, because prediabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Hello, I'm Janice Horrock, and my radio home is KTRL 90.5 FM for news. From Feature Story News in London, I'm Ollie Barrett. Sports. Touchdown, Tarleton Texans. Jazz and classical music. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsay Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we're glad you're joining us here on KTRL 90.5 FM. Uh, we're also streaming on tarletonradio.com. And if you uh, did not get all of the first half of the show today, uh, you can listen on SoundCloud. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow after the show airs today. And also download as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcast. So I want to clarify here, too, because we record segments of this show earlier in the week for airing on Sunday. So it's at different times. Sometimes it's wrapped up on, on a Friday. Uh, but uh, during the time that the we had the interview with uh, Dr. Underwood and we talked about star testing for this year, the Texas Education Agency came out with an announcement uh, saying that while star tests will go forward, uh, they will not use the accountability rating uh, for school districts. So that will be suspended for this year as Dr. Underwood was uh, was advocating uh, in that superintendents and districts across the state have been pushing that to say, let's do the testing, let's see where we are, let's see the impact of the pandemic, but let's not do the accountability ratings for the schools, which can then impact uh, funding, uh, the school status in terms of, of where it is in good standing uh, with the Texas Education Agency. And so uh, th there's been a lot of concerns because in the midst of this pandemic and adjusting uh, methods and, and the challenges of uh, having classrooms that are both in person and uh, remote learners as well, uh, there are lots of concern about students who are uh, falling behind in classes uh, who are, or who've not showed up for online classes or turned in assignments. I mean, there's just a lot of different facets of this that are pandemic uh, related that have disrupted uh, school operations. And so the Texas Education Commissioner, Mike Morath, in issuing this statement uh, on Thursday, uh, made this very clear in saying that, you know, the, the pandemic and the disruptions it has caused in fundamental ways have often been outside the control of our school leaders, making it far more difficult to use these ratings as a tool to support student academic growth. As a result, we will not issue A to F ratings for this school year. Uh, so this is a, a good news, I think, for administrators, teachers, uh, students as well. Uh, they are going to uh, allow students, uh, they, they'd already committed to allowing elementary and middle school students who may fail a STAR test to move on uh, to the next grade uh, with district permission. Uh, so uh, it, it also can determine whether high school students can graduate. Uh, so that's a that's a concern there as well that that will have to be looked at as we get further into this uh, next year and of course addressing the impact uh, of the pandemic. So I wanted to update you on that uh, while we had had that conversation and recorded that uh, interview. Uh, there was an update there that was in line with what Dr. Underwood and other superintendents have been asking of the state. 
So for the last part of the show, I want to move on to another issue that by the time the show airs on Sunday uh, may uh, be resolved or may be uh, moving forward. We, we just don't know. Uh, and that is the lawsuit that was brought this past week by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton asking that the U.S. Supreme Court block several battleground states, actually four states, from, as he says, unlawful and constitutionally tainted votes in the Electoral College. Uh, now, the votes have been certified. We are past this, what's called the Safe Harbor Day. But on Monday, December 14th is when the electoral votes will be cast by each state and then, of course, forwarded uh, to uh, the, the U.S. Congress uh, for the uh, the part of this where there is the reading and, and official tallying uh, of the votes that happens after uh, the beginning of the year. And so this is one of the first acts that Congress does when it comes back into session. So what Paxton is doing with this lawsuit is trying to uh, delay that counting of the Electoral College votes uh, or, or the casting of those votes, I should say, not counting. The counting comes later, as I said. Uh, in order to, uh, to, to bring into question uh, the election practices uh, in four states. And the states that he is focused on in this lawsuit are Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. So the reason why I'm doing the disclaimer here about what may happen is that I'm recording this po portion of the show on Friday morning. The Supreme Court, uh, the, the justices of the Supreme Court, are, are currently uh, in their, their regular kind of conference call. And some uh, say, hey, they'll, if they've done all their work in reading the, uh, the, the lawsuit and then the friend of the court briefs, which have been filed by a number of states, uh, as well as they had asked by Thursday, uh, yesterday, uh, I should say, I'm, I'm, again, I'm recording on Friday, that the uh, four states, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, respond uh, to the lawsuit. So they have done that. And so it, it's assumed that we could hear at any moment now, and, and we will probably know by the time that you're listening to this on Sunday, what direction this is going to go. Uh, legal experts, scholars, Many look at this and say, you know, this is unprecedented. It's a political matter. It appears on the surface. Uh, the, although a state has standing with the Supreme Court uh, to file suit against other states, you know, usually that has been over issues of borders, uh, water rights, uh, other, other related things. Uh, not necessarily an area like this where the constitutional interpretation of it in the past has been that this is a matter for the states. Each state determines its own election laws and process. Now, where that impacts the Constitution is where we've seen uh, things happen before in terms of the Voting Rights Act and, and other laws that have been addressed or established at the federal level in order to assure the equality and to meet the uh, the, the, the right to vote as it's uh, described in the Constitution. So there has been federal engagement with elections uh, in the past. Of course, the Constitution also determines this presidential election process, uh, but there's not been this, this kind of issue where uh, one state is actually bringing suit against the actions of other states saying that uh, what they did in managing elections within their state led to an outcome that brings injury to us. Even though Trump won in Texas, uh, even though the electoral votes were, were winner-take-all state, so uh, Texas will, the electors are chosen and then will cast their vote for Donald Trump for president, uh, it's still the, the outcome in the fact that right now it shows that Joe Biden will receive a sufficient number of electoral college votes uh, to be uh, named, uh, elected, uh, the next president. So this is very interesting, all the dynamics that are involved. And I, I wanted to, even though, again, the outcome may be determined and the Supreme Court may respond to this, uh, there, there's some background to this, I think, that we need to understand. And the reason why I'm bringing this to your attention is because I think we're, as we've seen with some of the other challenges to this, and I want to qualify this by saying I am not opposed to any group bringing uh, suit uh, against uh, 
election structure, against laws, against process within a state in order to ensure the integrity of the vote. Okay, that, that's not a question at all. I, and, and to me, that's a basic, not only a basic right, but a basic principle in our country that we should have free and fair elections uh, because our the stability of our country and our democracy are very much dependent uh, we, remember, we're, we're a representative democracy, we're a republic, uh, because we emphasize over, uh, over the will of the people, okay, the will of the people represented in democracy, we, we emphasize the, the rule of law, that we set laws in place, the foundation of that law is our constitution, and then everything else is built on that, and, and so that rule of law structures the way that we organize uh, our democracy and the way we carry out uh, our, uh, our, our rights and responsibilities as citizens and the way government functions as well. As well. It, it provides that framework. And thus we need the judiciary to be able to engage with that and, and to offer interpretation on, on how we do that. I know that's being very general, but I think we need to see that in this light. And so the reason why I'm focusing on this is because I think that, that we're seeing some, some very dangerous trends here uh, post-election that are should be of great concern and it, it's not so much about who won or not or, or didn't okay it's it's about the way we conduct ourselves the way we can we use government to address the challenges and issues now can can paxton file a lawsuit with the supreme court against other states he can and he did uh, again the supreme court has that role then to review their dispute with other states uh, but on the other hand we're, we're, what was trying to be done here so far, as we've seen without a, a tremendous amount of evidence, is to question uh, the rule of law within a specific state. Uh, as our Constitution identifies in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments that, you know, related to those powers, those reserve powers for the states, in that they have these responsibilities to govern. Uh, yes, there can be issues, and we see this uh, uh, along the way, where things are brought to court and they question decisions that have been made by a specific state, either within that state or in moving into the federal courts and questioning that. But then there's the opportunity for states to go back and address those uh, and, and to address them through the legislative process. And so what we're doing here is, and what this case does is it kind of circumvents that to say, okay, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, did you have challenges with your elections? Okay, yes, how significant were those challenges? Uh, so far, we've not seen in any court, in any, in any uh, way, that it was enough to uh, significantly alter the outcome of this election. Even the Attorney General of the U.S. has said that, the State Secretaries of State have said that, uh, it's been looked at in a number of court cases that have been filed by the uh, legal representation of the Trump administration. Uh, so the, the, but, but the, the right to do that, the opportunity to do that is certainly there. But what, if that points out uh, issues in the process, then that's up to that state legislature uh, to go back and review that and to say, okay, how do we adjust this going forward? I mean, we've seen this over and over again and since, since 2000 with the Bush-Gore election where a number of changes have been made, a number of, of adjustments and improvements have been made, even from 2016 to 2020, as we pointed out on a previous show, in that a lot of states concerned about uh, uh, interference uh, through technology uh, went back to using a, a bifurcated system where you vote on one machine and then it's tabulated on another, but it also creates a paper record. So a lot of states went back to that. Over 90% of our elections were conducted with a paper record in order to thwart any kind of, of, of uh, technological manipulation of the election, but then also to provide for recount, uh, to go back and to verify where necessary uh, that these uh, outcomes uh, were accurate. And so I think in terms of this lawsuit, you know, when we're looking at it, when we're looking at the, the timeliness of it right now with uh, uh, the Electoral College uh, delegates about to cast their votes uh, by state, uh, there, there's some concerns here. And I, I wanted to just go into a few specifics with the time I have left today. 
you know, some of the claims that the Attorney General of Texas is making is that uh, specifically in Georgia, that there were 80,000 uh, forged signatures. Uh, but again, th there hasn't been the documentation for that. And the Secretary of State of Georgia has come out again and again and said, you know, we've reviewed all this. We've done a recount. We've done a hand recount. We've done these verifications. Uh, it, it's just not um, it, it's just not the case. And so the, the, there's several other claims like this, but I think where the focus of the claim is, and this was the issue, and that's why I wanted to focus on Pennsylvania, is the procedural part of it. Because one of the things the case claims is that the states made these adjustments uh, during the pandemic uh, in order to, uh, uh, and, and in making those judgments, the, they impacted the outcome of the election. And, and in a way that is not what Paxton would be saying is, is constitutional. They, they violated uh, uh, the, uh, the constitutional integrity of voting by making these adjustments. Uh, and in, in most of these cases, uh, that's not really the case. I mean, if you, if you dig into it uh, and you look at uh, what happened, especially in Pennsylvania. Uh, in Pennsylvania, you have a bill uh, that was passed into law in 2019, uh, uh, long before the pandemic or a year before the pandemic, uh, that was a, a bill that found consensus and was primarily approved by Republicans uh, in both their House and their Senate and signed by a Democratic governor. And the bill itself, which allowed for uh, no uh, no cause mail-in or no excuse mail-in voting. Okay, so before in Pennsylvania, it was very similar to Texas. You had to have an excuse. You had to be away from where you could vote. Uh, you had to be uh, elderly and you, you're not able to go to a polling site. And there were a few other exceptions as well. So, so what they moved to was no excuse mail-in voting. You could just request a ballot and you could fill out that ballot and you could send it in if you were a registered voter and it, it would count. The, the compromise was that Democrats uh, agreed to give up or to support this uh, with, um, uh, with the mail, no excuse mail voting, but then also to get what Republicans wanted, which was to remove straight ticket voting. And so straight ticket voting has been a practice across the country in different states, and it has been in Texas up until recent elections. And straight ticket voting is where you can take your ballot and at the top will be a box by party and you just check that party. And so your vote will be cast for everyone on the ballot in that specific party. Uh, in Texas, uh, the straight ticket voting was, was removed uh, and, and for various reasons. And we can go into that uh, as it relates to in a future show. But in Pennsylvania, uh, the, the reason why Republicans want it removed is that there are more registered Democrats than Republicans in the state and straight ticket voting benefited uh, Democrats. And so it would be easier or there would be the opportunity for Republicans to win more down ballot races if straight ticket voting was removed. Uh, and, and part of this is you see that uh, with straight ticket voting is it does cast votes for others where now if you remove it, some people are going to go in there and you can always look at any state's election results and you can see, okay, more people voted for president than they did for any of these other uh, offices. And so some people just ignore the rest of the ballot. They don't vote at all. They just vote on the major races and, and, and go on. So in, strategically and politically, this can give uh, parties that have less representation, more opportunity uh, to win down ballot races. And this is actually what happened in 2020. It actually helped Republicans uh, to win down ballot races. And even though Joe Biden received the majority of the, of the vote uh, for president, uh, Republicans in Pennsylvania retained control of the House and the, and the Senate in the state legislature. Uh, and they also won, picked up two more statewide offices, uh, the treasurer and the auditor general. So it, it actually did what it was intended to do being voted as I, uh, or supported by Republicans and, and some Democrats. So when Act 77, which is the specific law we're talking about, when it passed 35 to 14, Republicans voted 27 to zero in favor with eight Democrats. The other 14 dissenting votes came from Democrats. That was in the Pennsylvania Senate. 
in the House, Republicans voted 105 to two in favor, uh, where Democrats were more divided 59 against 33 in favor. But it, it passed overwhelmingly. It was seen as bipartisan way of addressing some of this. Where the focus shifted then in the pandemic, after this was approved, and of course it's been challenged in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and in the Supreme Court, it, the case was refused to be heard because they had already been through several elections with no uh, contesting of, of this, of no excuse mail-in voting. Where some of the concerns have, have come in uh, with this is the, the way in which it was implemented. And so this is where a focal point's been that may miss a lot of us if we're just kind of caught up in the details. Uh, but some of this were, was about how uh, the vote itself was uh, implemented, including drop boxes uh, for ballots and where they were located. Uh, the, the fact that in the implementation of it, there, these could come in up to three days after the election itself uh, by mail and could still be counted. Here's where I'm getting to the, the point on this. These kinds of issues, if they led to problems with, the, the, with conducting the election, then these are issues that need to be addressed by the state of Pennsylvania or other issues in the state of Georgia, Michigan, wherever it may be, or even in Texas, if we had issues with voting, these, these, these kind of technical areas that, that, that do not show uh, extensive uh, abuse or fraud or um, uh, uh, problems with the outcome of the race, but more are structural in terms of how the election is implemented, then again, we need to look at those in terms of the state's responsibility to address those and to fix them going forward. And I'm sure after all of this, and once all the dust settles, that some states, especially Pennsylvania with a Republican-controlled legislature, will probably get back to work to address some of this and to try to address some of the concerns that are being raised. But they're not the kinds of concerns that bring this to a level that we start seriously questioning uh, the way that we govern ourselves and the way that it has worked in terms of the state's responsibilities in conducting elections. What we see with this is, is could be a very dangerous path in going in one direction where so many decisions by states could be challenged by other states or where you have the, the federal government move deeper into uh, oversight of election law. And I think those are troubling concerns that we need to watch in what the Supreme Court will answer or will have answered by the time uh, that you hear this broadcast. I want to thank you for joining me today with our interview in the first half with Dr. Matt Underwood of Stephenville ISD and also this little kind of delving into this Supreme Court case that uh, will uh, uh, may set some precedent or may not. And I want you to encourage you to join us each week right here on KTRL 90.5 FM as we bring you nonpartisan information engaging deeply into policy, government, and many other issues that impact our lives today. Thank you for joining us. Radio Network podcast with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.